Well, hello there, Todd. Hi, Laura. We're back. We're back. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I am so excited too. I missed you. Missed you too. You know, we took some time off. We both needed a mental health break from a mental health podcast because it's, you know, we talked to a lot of amazing people about a lot of very intense topics and it did take its toll. Plus life, you know, came about plus the holidays, all that stuff. But I'm so happy we're re-energized. We're back. Yeah. How are you doing? How are you doing? I am good. I am definitely busy, but in a good way, as opposed to I feel like there for a little bit, it was a lot all at once, as you mentioned. But now I am back dancing again. Well, I've always kept dancing, but I'm dancing or training for the oxygen ball that I won last year. So yeah, I know. Yeah. So this year as the winner and an alumni, I am dancing and passing off the trophy to whoever wins this year. And it's in April. And so we still got some time and I already feel like we're on top of it. So this is like way better than when I was competing. I'm not losing my mind nearly as much. And it's great. I've got the same instructor, Scott, who you've met. And yeah, yeah, we're He's the great. Vegas theme. So we're doing some Britney Spears. It's exciting. But yeah, love that. I love about that. you. Well, I just closed Greece at La Mirada Theater. Yes, congratulations. Thank you. I played Vince Fontaine. So that's that's another reason why we didn't do it because my schedule was crazy. But yeah, it was, you know, that show is just, it's just fun. It's mm-hmm. just silly and fun. But a lot and of work, it seemed like. Yeah. Yeah, it was. And it was really cool because, you know, Barry Pearl, who was in the original movie, who played Duty in the movie, you know, came to see it and did some of our press for us. So that was kind of cool. A little starstruck in that moment, not going to lie. But yeah, it was a very, it was interesting because it's the first time I wasn't playing like the young, (laughs) like teenager. Uh I was like, I'm not a Danny anymore. (laughs) Vince Fontaine. When you think about it, Danny in (laughs) reality was in high school. So it's like, it's kind of crazy when you think about the fact that John Travolta even well, played him. He was in his 30s. Yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. Like, <laughs> I know. Come on. There's some stretches we can take, but that it's a bit much. Yeah. So, you know, this was a more realistic version of Grease. Uh, sure. Yeah. And it was it was a lot of fun. We had a great cast. They were very, very talented kids. Oh, my God. I just said kids. <laughs> you were the dad. <laughs> They're like in there. Yeah, I know. God. Oh, we're growing up. We are, we are. But I am super, super excited about season two. And our first guest is a pretty remarkable guy. His name is Tyler Kane Whitman from Million Dollar Listing New York on the Bravo Network. Yeah, super. I mean, talk about just a fun guy to kick off the next round of all of our podcasts because he's just so much energy. I loved it. It it was infectious. And (laughs) he's also done a lot of work on himself. And I think a lot of people are going to relate to him. And I don't know, just in general, I think it was a a very good choice for our return episode. So definitely tell us a little bit about about Tyler. Oh, sure. Sure. Well, Tyler Kane Whitman. Tyler is no stranger to the public eye after starring on Bravo's Million Dollar Listing New York and currently co-hosting the hit real estate and mindset podcast Glitter and Gay with real estate celebrity Glenda Baker. He is a seasoned real estate professional with over a decade of experience helping people find homes in New York City. 
After getting sober and losing 200 pounds with weight loss surgery and very hard work, Tyler continues to inspire others to reach their goals and live a healthier lifestyle. Please welcome to the program, Tyler Kane Whitman. Good morning, Tyler. Hi. How you doing? I'm good. We're so excited to have you on the program. We were just talking right before we got on air, and Tyler and I knew each other from years ago in New York City, and a lot of things have, have changed for both of us. We were just talking, it's been like over a decade since we knew each other. It has been. We were 12. Yes. <laughs> we were 12. <laughs> since we're totally. all 22 right now, so, you know, don't worry about it. Um, yeah, no, it's been like a long ass time, honey. <laughs> well, y'all very excited to see each other when you first came on. So obviously have lots of fun when you're together. So that's hopefully. Well, Laura, I didn't want you to feel left out. No, no, I didn't. I had, I enjoyed it. I feel it. so bad. No, no, you don't, <laughs> but it's fine. I, <laughs> no, it's really good to see. I love it when we have different guests on, like some of them know me, some of them know Todd, some of them don't know either of us. So it's, it's always a different dynamic. It's really fun. So we're really happy to have you on here. Thank you so much for joining us. As I told you, it's exciting all around. And the first one we've done in a while since our kind of little hi- hiatus we took. So welcome on. Okay, Tyler. So first of all, most people know you from Bravo's Million Dollar Listing New York. But for those of you who don't know you, can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, where you're from originally, and what brought you to real estate? Sure. I mean, that could take the entire episode in general. <laughs> I love talking about myself. So I'm originally from the South. I grew up in a small town outside of Pensacola, Florida called Navarre. And I actually, I feel like I owe like kind of like a little explanation here because I always say I'm from Alabama because all of my family now lives in Alabama and uh-huh. growing up, like when my parents got divorced, my dad moved to Alabama, the the town that he and my mom grew up in. And then, you know, and then like all of my extended family has always lived there. And then when I was either a junior or senior in high school, my mom actually moved to Alabama, but she didn't want me to have to switch high school so late in the game. So she kept the house that we had in Navarre and she would go there for work like Monday through Friday. And she just trusted me. I just lived home alone Monday through Friday when I was wow. like 17 and 18. And you know what? I was such a good kid. I was going like, really <laughs> or I really was. I didn't get drunk for the first time until... I had already graduated high school. I was still living at home. But no, I was like, I, honestly, very prim and proper. Bravo to you for that, by the way. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't become a problem until I left. It was like all of a sudden, one I was out, my 20s were a fucking disaster. I mean, <laughs> I was everybody's worst nightmare. You did not want to become a big part of my life in my 20s. That's when I knew you, right? That's when it was late 20s. And, and you 30s? ghosted me. You ghosted me, well, honey. Yeah, ghosted let's you. hear more on that. <laughs> okay. All right. So I so I moved to New York and just get my heart destroyed Stop. by this guy named Todd. <laughs> so I hate my feelings. He is single-handedly <laughs> responsible for my obesity. And <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> This is the best. Now I'm going to start best drinking. Best thing ever. Um, <laughs> oh, my God. No, I actually, until you said that, because that was so long ago. It was so long ago. But then we became friends after that. We did. I actually remember the story very specifically. I was playing coy before we started. <laughs> yes. 
But listen. He actually agreed to this podcast just to roast yeah, me. Yeah, I know. It's not to roast. It's a, listen, it's Revenge. a fine story. Yeah. But I do have this weird memory. I remember a lot of really unimportant things. And then, like, if it's something super important, I'm like, you never said that. And they're like, I said it five times in one phone call. And I'm like, oh, so I just wasn't listening. Yeah. I'm like, I gotta work on that. Didn't store that one. So... I I guess the true story is, so I moved to, I went to school in Birmingham, college in Birmingham, Alabama for a semester, and I was a wreck. It was the first time I felt very lost in my life. because you were in Birmingham. Sorry, Birmingham. <laughs> I, I did a show there. Woof. I actually think Birmingham is a very cool city. It's the surrounding areas. Like, I think it's like Mississippi, right, is near? No, I, I mean, sure. It's like two hours. Yeah. <laughs> It's near Navarre. We don't it's know. It's not next door. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, isn't that on the ocean? <laughs> Aren't you guys known for your peaky mountains? Got it. Uh, okay. <laughs> so... Anyway, my mom, it was the first time I ever really, I I didn't identify it as such when I was that age, but it was the first time I ever really fell into like a true depression. You know, I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. A series of weird like things happened. I mean, if this is funny, because one of those was like this treacherous friendship that I had with somebody. He was just this guy that I like put on a pedestal. I just thought he was like the coolest person in the world. I didn't have any gay friends before him. He was like my first like gay BFF. And I remember I just thought he was like what I wanted to be when I grow up. You know, he was confident. Everybody loved him. He came from money. He had a hot boyfriend. And anyway, I ended up learning like four months into it that Everything he had ever told me was a lie. I mean, he had completely made up his entire life. He had told me he was from Los Angeles. He was actually from like one town over from me. And he told me his dad was the manager for Maroon 5. I mean, it was oh just, my my stories were endless. Pathological. His pathological life. To- total pathological. And it was just like, the way it all unfolded, I remember, especially at the time I was 18, right? So now I could just like laugh and roll my eyes and be like, oh, well, I hope they get better and just yeah. like move on, you know, yeah. and like not not really put, but at the time it felt like my, my life was ending. Side note, the reason that, so I'm in Florida right now for the equestrians season and I ended up like reconnecting with his boyfriend at the time I hadn't seen him in like 20 years and all of a sudden we were like wait a second (laughs) and anyway he's great I feel like we're actually going to be like real life friends now his boyfriend or him his boyfriend. Okay, good, good, good. I was like, we don't need to they have... They broke up. I was like, we don't need that guy as a friend, the one that is lying about everything. Oh, totally. No, they broke up. When the truth came out, it came out for everybody. And uh, okay. I just have no idea what ended up happening with that guy. But according to his 20-year ex, he was like, I have no idea. He was like, I never thought about him again. And I was like, wow. I was like, he's a big part of my trauma. So I was like... <laughs> wow. I was like, I think about, I think about him a lot. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm in therapy. <laughs> you said you're down in Florida right now for the equestrian season. You do competitions, right? Oh yeah, yeah. It's a big part of my life. You know, when you're not doing real estate, that's pretty much what you're doing, right? You have a farm and yep. stuff. I bored him at a farm. No, I wish oh, okay. I had my own farm. Life is good, but we ain't there yet. Oh no. I mean, but honestly, just boarding him at a farm is almost as much as my mortgage payment. So. Maybe I should just get a farm. Yeah. Well, I mean, considering you're in real estate, I don't think it'd be too hard to to find some options. But how did True. you end up getting into real estate? What, what brought you to that after you met Liar, Liar Pants on Fire? 
I fall into this deep depression. Me and my mom are talking. I had never been to New York, but in the back of my head, I was like, that's where I belong. I don't know why. That was just like what I always believed is that I belonged in New York. And so I took a semester off of school. This was supposed to be temporary. Went home, stayed with my mom for the summer and waited tables and saved up like $3,000 and used that money. And I was supposed to just go to New York kind of short term while I kind of like figured things out and got to New York, started waiting tables at Planet Hollywood and Times Square. And very glamorous. I don't want to make anybody super jealous on this podcast, so I'm trying to like tame it down. But yeah, yeah, I went to tables in Times Square. (laughs) And I made so much money that I also had to get a second job as like one of those guys in Times Square who like hands out flyers to people at TKTS convincing them to go see Broadway shows. Oh, wow. And you also have to know that at this time, I'm pushing like 350 pounds And, you know, and I'm just, I'm really just faking it at this point because I always played the role of happy, jolly, chubby gay boy. And I played the role to absolute perfection. Everybody bought it. But, you know, I was a miserable, lonely, depressed guy. I was always trying to pretend that everything was okay when it wasn't. And the way that I did that would be just always trying to you know, pretend I had things I didn't have, whether it was money or accomplishments or like whatever. I just wanted people to think I was cool. You know, I just wanted to be like that guy, the liar. I wanted to be him in real life. And I wanted people to think that I was him, you know, and so I was always trying to project that. And it was exhausting. And I was living way beyond my means. I couldn't pay my rent and ended up having to move out of my first apartment and moved in. I got like a random sublet on Craigslist, which is how you found apartments back in the day. And moved in with this guy, straight guy, 10 years older than me. And he was a real estate agent. And it just got the wheels turning in my head. I was like, oh, I was like, I kind of like his life. I kind of like like what this guy is up to. I was like, maybe, maybe I should look at this for myself. And he kept telling, he loves to tell this story in his own way. But I promise you the truth is that he was like, don't do it. He's <laughs> like, it is so hard. Nobody makes any money. He's like, I'm just lucky. I have these exclusives. And I was like, and I almost listened to him. And then, of course, I was like, I got to a point where I was like, well, it's either this or I live not even paycheck to paycheck. It was like credit card payment to credit card payment. You know, I was like that far behind on everything financially. It's just got to be and stressful. It was just like money to me was the devil. You know, it controlled everything for me. This is so crazy because I always remember you being so rich. I've only been rich for like three years. The rest of it was fake. Always at the bar, you always put your card down. It was never like, oh, I don't have it. Yeah, no, it was because I wanted everybody to think I was awesome. You know, that was not because it was comfortable for me to do it. But I was like, there's a little there's a little margin left on this credit card. I'll pay. <laughs> like, oh, my God. Yeah, no, no, no idea. And then I would go home and just like freak out over money. I remember also learning at one point that one of my friends was escorting and he told it to me as kind of like his shame secret. And he thought that I was just going to be like so upset with him. And do you know what emotion I felt was complete and utter jealousy because I was like, do you know what I would do to be able to sleep with somebody for some money right now? I was like, and you know, I was like, I can't find my audience. I was like, who likes it? Who likes the big boys? And so 
I was desperate. So I got my license and the first half of my career was very painful. And the only thing that kept me going was the fact that I had kind of projected this image of success. So I guess for like better or worse. And I was like, I'm going to have to figure this out. Like I'm going to have to get caught up and I can't like fail publicly. So I'm just going to have to keep hustling. And it took me a very long time. And I would say in 2013, I remember I was approached by these two guys and they were like, we're going to start this company together and would love to talk to you about it. And I had convinced them that I was way more successful than I was. And we got together and we like really hit it off. And one thing led to another. And they're like, do you want to start this company with us? And I remember I was like, oh, they're going to find out that I am not the success I have like convinced them that I am. And so I originally said no, they kept following up. And then finally, I was like, "Eh, fuck it. I was like, okay, let's do this. You know, and that was the moment that really changed my life forever. You know, we started Triple Mint. They gave me health insurance. A couple of years later, I used that health. It was the first time I had ever been insured as an adult. What age were you? In 2013, I would have been like 26, 27. Wow. And then so it was, yeah, because it end of 2015 that I had the surgery. And I remember I had just turned 30. So I had weight loss surgery. And then that year I lost like 225 pounds. We're going to get into that later. That's, that is, uh, that, I can't believe how much weight you've lost. It's insane. It's been a ride. And then, and it was like weird after that. But, you know, the, the truth is, is that all of a sudden, like I lost weight And I had all these expectations. I was like, because every failure in my life, I had always blamed on my weight. You know, I was never secure. And then ended up realizing that the only person who gave a shit about my weight was me. Like, you know, people are always going to be people. People are always going to like show up and do their things. So for like the first two years after weight loss, I was in a completely new spiral because I was like, oh, it wasn't my weight. Like people just don't like me. Like things just aren't going to happen for me. I was like, I'm just a fucking disaster, you know? And then I started making these videos (laughs) on social media and those videos changed my life forever. It's how I eventually got a million dollar listing, which is what led to our company fully exploding. And we got up to like 400 employees and then we just sold last year and like and all of a sudden I look back and I'm like look that was a fucking ride (laughs) like you know like that was crazy well also I was gonna kind of ask like how did you you know end up working kind of in collaboration with the agency after building your own brand and why was that merger itself like so impactful for you I remember so there's like a blessing and a curse of not being working at a brokerage that's like a nationwide brand because, you know, a huge portion of our business is getting referrals from other agents and other markets. And it's also a huge revenue source. So if like I refer out business, whatever they do, I get 25% of and vice versa. And so creating a huge referral network, it's a dream. And it also, it's such a powerful way to create so much passive income. And so much so that I know some agents who do not do business on their own. They just refer out business and and take referral fees. And like, that's how they make their living. And the nice thing about not being at a nationwide brokerage is that I can then go out and like partner up with agents at all sorts of other non-nationwide brokerages. And I always kind of liked that. And I had always gravitated towards agents at the agency. You know, it was just like all of a sudden that was always kind of my 
And at the time, agency wasn't as big. Now they're in like 52 markets and growing pretty substantially each year. And at this point, you know, I had already been a million dollar listing for a couple of years. And to be honest, the company had gotten so big that I wasn't really involved in anything operationally or anything behind the scenes. I didn't want to be anymore. You know, I have like my ownership and my equity and I was like, let me know how it works out, <laughs> you know? And I, I know I was like, fingers crossed. And I ended up, I remember it was Thanksgiving, 2021, Phil and David, the co-founders came over and we were just kind of like catching up. I hadn't seen them much during like the dark days of the pandemic. And they're like, so what are your thoughts on the agency? I was like, oh, I love them. That's like who I do all my referral business with. I was like, I think everybody I've met there is amazing. And he was like, what if we became the agency? Which was, you know, and everybody knows this because uh, I, I don't really keep things to myself. I was a mixed bag of emotions. You know, it's like it's a brand that I've adored, that I've admired from afar so much of my identity and like my pride was wrapped up in the fact that Triple Mint felt like my baby. I felt like my face was synonymous with that brand. I felt like when people heard it, that was, I was the first person they thought about. And I was like, that's not the case with the agency, right? Like I'm probably not even the top five of people that come to mind whenever you hear the agency. And, you know, my ego, I had to get like a real check in there because I was like, why is that important to me? Like, this is obviously like a, a huge moment. And, you know, it was just like, I, I think for me, it was another one of those moments where I was like, I've got work to do. Like, yeah, you know, like I've got some things to unkink in my brain for sure. You've done so much work on yourself. It's just incredible the, the work you've done on yourself, like, like your inner healing and talking about, we talk about ego all the time on the show and how it's so powerful. And you do mm -hmm. have, like you said, get it, you have to get it in check because it will run your life. Yeah. And I think it's very like a mature and self-reflective to be like, why do I care that I'm not going to be the face of this company? I think we all kind of deal with that, especially once you like build something, you don't want to just be the small fish in the, you know, big pond for the next thing. But sometimes you have to do that to get to where you need to be. <laughs> so I commend you for that. You took the words right out of my mouth. I mean, that was kind of like the moment for me is that I was like, if I want to grow and I, I was like, as much as I love real estate and I love business and it's not, I, I actually think I have a really good talent for it. I think I'm like really, really good at it, but I love it. You know, like I really love it. And so it's like, it's easy for me to dive in and learn all the new things that are happening and have all the conversations that need to be had. And like, I love all the dynamics of it. But at the same time, my life fantasy is very big. You know, it's very big. One thing that I've continued to learn, I've learned this through friendships, through people I've dated, through business. Honestly, I learned it a lot on my horse is that like you have to make some difficult decisions in order to like create space for like the next big thing. Or you're just all in on this thing forever which isn't the end of the world, right? Like if this is, if, if I die and this business turns out to be my greatest accomplishment, then I'm totally satisfied. I don't want to sound like ungrateful, but you know, the vision is I want to, I want to write books. I want to create brands. I want to invest in other businesses. I want to do a lot of TV shows. There's like so many things on the dream list. Speaking on that, 
What was it like working on television on Million Dollar Listing New York? And did you think you were destined for reality TV? Like, what are the pros and cons? Okay, great question. So when you and I first knew each other in my 20s, -hmm. for some reason in my head, I was like, oh, I'm going to be famous, right? Like, this is going to happen for me. And then that faded. You know, I lost a lot of my self-confidence. It very much faded out for me. And then it wasn't even on my radar that, you know, something something big was going to happen for me. And I remember I was just like, I'm always going to live kind of like this simple run-of-the-mill life. I was like, and I I need to stop dreaming because these dreams are torturing me and they're probably never going to happen. You know, I just lost 100% of my confidence in any of it. And I went to a real estate seminar and the guy who was leading it was talking a lot about video marketing and how he thought that was like the future. And and I remember I was like, well, I like doing videos and stuff. I was like, maybe I was like, maybe I should do it. And everybody in the room at the, and now when you turn on social media, it's nothing but talking heads of real estate agents. But at the time, it did not exist. And a lot of people in the room were like, oh, I could never. I could never. And and in the back of my head, I was like, I could. I, I could right that. now. <laughs> and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, anybody got a camera? I know. And, and so I came home. I posted on Facebook that I was looking for a video crew and that I wanted to do a cute little like 60 second video series. I remember that. I remember when you posted that. And I got synced up with this company, Hallelujah Creative, and met up with them and we sat down and did 12 60-second episodes of uh, my series that we came up with the name on the spot, Whitman Wisdom. And, you know, it was just like 60-second, how to buy a house, how to handle an inspection, watch a co-op, watch a condo. Important information, to be fair. <laughs> totally. But now whenever I see them, I'm like, oh, another one of those. Uh, but, <laughs> but, you know, like once upon a time, I was the only choice. Yeah. And anytime I'm feeling really cocky, I'm always like, you guys do know I invented these, right? <laughs> <laughs> and I am credited with it pretty, pretty regularly. But now there's like some people who have gotten like, I mean, honestly, Glenda Baker, my co-host on my podcast, she's the most famous for them. And she and I talk about it offline. She's like, you know, it's so funny, sweetie. Once upon a time, I wanted to be like you. And now everybody wants to be like me. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the compliment. (laughs) I know. I was like, I understand. Yeah. And so... Anyway, long story short, those videos ended up, I didn't audition for Million Dollar Listing, but I guess somehow they got their eyes on them and they reached out. And at this point, I hadn't been thinking about a public image life of anything for a very long time. And so when they reached out, I actually thought I was getting catfished. You know, I thought that, yeah, I really just thought that I was, I I didn't know what was going on. And so I kind of like brushed them off and I was like, no, thank you. And then they called somebody on my team and really came for me. And so I was like, I guess I'll, I'll talk to them. So we FaceTimed. And then later that week, they were like, we just need to do a screen test. And so they filmed me showing a townhouse. And then I found out pretty much instantly that I got it. And I was like, are we sure? I was like, I thought this was going to be like a very long process. Well, they'd seen all your videos. They already knew. They knew the talent was there. 
They just said it. That's exactly what they said. They were they were like, your Instagram is just one big audition reel. They were like, Mm -hmm. we had a lot to go off of before we met with you. We would not have been chased you down if we didn't think it was there. You know, so to answer the original question, the pros are. It is it's huge, like huge what the platform does for your business. It's also huge what the platform does for your confidence, you know, like. I like the level of public image because, you know, I'm very well known amongst the real estate community. Every real estate agent in the world knows who I am. And then there's like, obviously the Bravo junkies who also know who I am. But for the most part, like if I'm walking down the street, I, you know, I'm not worried about paparazzi. I'm not like, you know, nobody, nobody's trying to get the ends on where I'm going to dinner tonight. Like... And I like that. I like having like that balance of, but when I walk down the street, at least a few times a day, somebody will just in passing be like, love you on the show. And nobody has said, I hate you on the show yet. I think they keep that to themselves. That was nice to them. Yeah. There's really only one con and it's that it takes up a lot of your time. I mean, a lot of your time. You know, I'm definitely somebody who likes to live in the flow. You know, I'm definitely, I'm not a super regimented, scheduled guy who is, you know, I wake up and I'm like, here's, here's the time block of my day. Here's when I'm doing this. Here's when I'm doing that. You know, I like to say like, I had some calls this morning and then I took my dogs for a long walk and then I'm going to do this podcast and then I'm going to go to the gym and then I'm going to, and then I have some showings and then I'm going to go ride my horse. And the show takes that away from you, you know, because they are, it's all very real. None of it's like set up, but you know, you tell them what you're working on that week and then they're like, okay, we want to film this. We want to film this and we want to film this. And then I'm like, okay, I guess that means I got to stick to it, you know, and then things will happen. And they're like, can we come along for that? And, you know, there is a lot of stopping and starting because like before you go in, they need to go light it and like get their cameras ready. But we try to keep everything as organic as possible for, for the audience. And so like, for me, I'm not a good actor. I'm, I'm genuine. That's not self-deprecating, but like I need everything to happen organically like i'm i'm fine being in the moment but like if i i can't go into an apartment and pretend i've never seen it before if i've seen it before and they love they love catching that like initial reaction and so i always say whenever i get there i'm like you need to mic me outside i was like i'm not gonna be able to go in there and pretend i've never seen it if i've seen it yeah and so and they loved that and so like out in the hallway they would like mic me up and we would go and we You know, but I think like the biggest lesson I've learned from the experience is when I got on the show, all of a sudden my phone was going to blow up and everybody in the world was going to call me wanting to work with me. And that was not the case. You know, like I would actually say my phone rings a lot less because I think it makes you come off almost as like unattainable. You know, like people are like, oh, he's not going to want to sell my little house. Like, you know, he's a big, he's, he's a TV star. And, you know, now that said... When I show up for the opportunities, I really get them. And I also have learned that 90% of my clients don't watch the show. You know, they're, they're just not Bravo people. And so for me, the real lesson there was that like, I didn't need this. I needed this as like a personal confidence booster, but this show is not what gets me the business. It gave me confidence. And now I show up in a different way in my life. Same thing with weight loss. I was just you know, the weight say, loss bothered me. Yeah. But it didn't bother the other people, but yeah. I've let it go. And so now I show up differently. It's been definitely some powerful 
transformation mentally from yeah. that, that I'm really grateful for. Well, I was going to say there did seem to be a lot of, well, for one, I am so much like you. I cannot have like a really regimented day or I will like lose my mind. So hear you on that, but, and also not a great actor, but just listening to all that, it sounded very similar to what you alluded to before about your weight loss and how it wasn't the overnight kind of experience that you kind of expected, but we do want to to get into that as far as, you know, you have this incredible story about overcoming obesity and getting sober. And at one point you were quoted as calling your weight a crippling insecurity. And in your late twenties, you got a physical and the doctor told you weighed 387 pounds and you had weight loss surgery in the form of sleeve gastroectomy. Is that correct? I'm not butchering that. Yeah. That's like the, that's the very scientific fancy way of saying it. Yeah. Okay. There we go. I sound smart. Okay. (laughs) What, what, what was the surgery and the recovery from that? Like, and how did it, you know, obviously kind of impact you? We've heard a little bit of that, but like you to elaborate if you don't mind. So I spent, you know, basically teens all throughout my twenties yo-yoing, you know, I'd go on like these crash diets and I'd like lose weight and gain weight. And I was really good at it. But every time I gained weight, I would gain more than I lost. And, you know, and so the weight would just creep up. And then there was just like this. And I think that was almost like the bigger insecurity than just being constantly overweight. It was like, people can see, and it's different even than from sobriety, right? But because physically people can see when you're succeeding and when you're failing and, you know, you'll walk around and everybody's like, wow, you're looking good. Have you lost a little weight? And then, you know, and then you fall off the wagon, you gain back even more. And then, you know, and then people stop saying it. And of course you're yeah. like, they all think I'm fat now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, And like people, people have stopped complimenting my weight loss probably because I've gained a hundred pounds, but, and I have a sense of humor about it now, but it would like eat me alive. And for whatever reason, I was always very against weight loss surgery. I was like, I'm going to do it all naturally. I was like, just you wait, I'll show you. And there was just, I don't know why the time was the time. A very similar thing with sobriety. I don't know why that my last drink was my last drink. I'd been wanting to quit drinking for years, just like I'd been wanting to lose weight for years. And I just had this kind of like white light moment in both times where I was like, I have to do something. Like, I I can't let this rule my world anymore. I had known a ton of people who had various weight loss surgeries. There's a few you can choose from. And... All the people who had the most positive things to say in my life were people who had had the sleeve. And I think most people go into it probably wanting to get the lap band. And the lap band for a long time was very popular because it's reversible, it's adjustable. But I kept hearing like so many negative side effects that people were having, and mainly around just constantly being uncomfortable. You could feel it. And I, listen, I've never had it. Yeah, so I'm not yeah, speaking yeah. from personal experience, but it sounded like because you could adjust it through like this valve in your belly button, I guess, with saline, that sometimes it would get too tight and you would be like forced like, into bulimia because oh no, it was like, no. yeah. yeah. And I had heard that from so many people that I was just like, I don't think that's the one for me. Mm-hmm. And almost everybody I knew who had it eventually had it removed. You know, they were just too uncomfortable. And I think sleeve is probably a little bit scarier when you first hear about it because it's permanent. You know, it is definitely something that stays forever. But my surgeon put it in a way that was just like, I felt so understood in that initial consultation where, because nobody ever really talked to me about how hunger and the stomach works. Because I promise you, 
until this surgery, I had never experienced fullness. You know, like when people are like, oh, I'm full. I was like, what? A, me too. You know, like I, I just, I, <laughs> I didn't know what that felt it, like. like usual. <laughs> exactly. They had, basically, she was like, every human as an adult, she was like, your stomach muscle is basically about the size of a football. And when it's empty, she's like, it's basically like a, a deflated football. And she was like, and that deflation is basically the signal to your brain that you're hungry. And so as you eat, it expands. And she was like, and the expansion of your stomach is basically that feeling that signals to your brain that you're full. And she was like, for somebody who has been a chronic overeater your whole life, your football is now an oversized basketball. And she was like, to get it to the point where it's stretching at this point is very, she's like, it's almost impossible. She was like, so you don't feel full ever. And I was like, never. I was like, I never feel full. I was like, whatever you put in front of me, I was like, I'm going to finish it and I'm going to want more. And she was like, well, that's because she was like, your stomach is digesting food faster than you can put into it. And so she was like, even if you sit down for like a huge feast, she was like, by the time you would ever get it to the spot where it's like expanded and sending that message to your brain, she's like, it's already digested so much of like what you were eating earlier that she was like, it's just, it's this cycle. And she was, so anyway, they, in this surgery, they take your now deflated basketball and they make it the size of a banana. And they do it all through your belly button, so there's no scars from it. Well, you have, like, these little incision scars, but it's not, like, a crazy scar at all. And honestly, for me, it was pretty painless. You have to spend the night in the hospital. Insurance does cover it if you meet, like, all the weight guidelines. You have to be heavy enough and have some other things. But I met those requirements with flying colors. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, because at that time, I was pretty broke. So to be able to afford surgery, I could only do it with insurance. And then... Recovery was fast, you know, and it was funny because they were like, you're going to be on an all liquid diet for like two weeks. And I remember going into that surgery being like an all liquid diet. I was like, I, that is not going to work. I was, it was so weird because I could have like a cup of a, literally a measured out cup of tomato soup felt like a Thanksgiving feast. And and it was the first that I was like, oh, this is what, but now no wonder people are like, I can't eat more. I'm full. I'm like, it's yeah. uncomfortable being full. I was what like, was I've that never first felt time th- like being full. So I remember it was very interesting. And this is something that I think happens to a lot of people right after. I didn't know like what the limits were. And they talk to you about it whenever you're having the procedure. They're like, don't like, don't freak out. If you overeat, you probably will throw up the first time because you're feeling things that you've never felt before. And so I remember like my brain was not connecting to the feeling because I was like, there's no way this cup of soup is enough for me. And I was like, I need, I was like, I definitely, I just need more. And so I went like a little bit more and then I was in like actual physical pain and I did throw up and I was like, oh my God, I was like, this is not the life I was looking for. Yeah. But I mean, did, did you finally understand the statement that your eyes are bigger than your stomach? In a way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) For sure. That's what they've been talking about. Okay. And then I was also wrong about another thing, which is because it became so painful to overeat. And I had heard about people like stretching their stomach back out and like gaining the weight back. And I know that happens for a lot of people. And early on after surgery, I remember I was like, how do they do? I was like, this is so anytime I even slightly overeat, I was like, it's so physically painful. I was like, how does anybody do this? Over time. Now I really have to 
be regulated about what I eat because I can eat pretty much whatever I want now. I do get full, but like in the beginning, that cup of soup felt like a feast. Now, if I go out to a restaurant, I can eat 75 to 80% of what comes out on the plate. You know, if it's a smaller course, I can easily finish the whole thing. It just depends on if I'm at a local restaurant or a chain restaurant. Because, <laughs> you know, those chains love their big servings. They do. But thankfully, you know, it was like when when I lost the weight and I started to realize like that the world was not going to be what I wanted it to be on the other side of weight loss. It was the first time I started working with professionals, like mental health professionals. And so glad that I did that because if I hadn't fixed or not fixed, because it's still very much a work in progress. But if I hadn't started to like address the trauma, the things that just basically the way my brain works around certain things, if I hadn't started to work on that, I do think that I'd be right back where I was. You know, I do think that I'd be one of the people because because it still shows up for me. There's definitely night today, and I've been this size now seven years. Yeah, seven years I've been, you know, at my weight, give or take 10 pounds, I still fluctuate like a like a normal person. Sometimes I'm healthier than others. But I could easily, very easily get back to old Tyler. You mean if you don't stay on top of it, like with mental health? Totally. Because like, there's been many times that I binge eat, you know, like, and it's still, I would say like, as often as monthly, you know, and it seems like come in waves. And I can almost connect it to this underlying feeling of less than. Like right now I'm going through a lot of just like nothing bad, but I'm just like facing some big decisions in my business about do I want to go bigger? Do I want to just keep things as they are and just enjoy the ride? I'm like, or do I want to go to the next level? And of course, like the superhero in me is like, we're going bigger. Like we're taking over the world. And then when I start to live in that, I'm like, or I was like, what if that doesn't work out? Like, what if I lose everything? What if I what if I fail publicly? Which is so like this weird, like deep fear that I have always. It's like, what will other people think? And when I get lost in that, I'm like, it's almost like I become possessed. I'm like, okay. I was like, well, let's let's eat everything today. And now I have the tools in my tool belt, thankfully, mainly actually from sobriety that I now apply to so many other areas of my life that just get me to check in with it. Tyler, as far as getting sober, you were quoted in an article on Today Online saying at one point that you were drinking, quote, 12 glasses of wine a day. And you were also quoted saying, quote, I was never really drunk, never sloppy, but I was buzzed most of the day. And people started pointing out to you that you were drinking a lot. Can you take us through the moment you decided alcohol was no longer going to be a part of your life? And was this before or after you lost the weight? It was after I lost the weight and I was not a big drinker at all. I would have like party nights for sure, but if I, I was not out, <laughs> but listen, if we weren't out that night, like I wasn't drinking, alcohol wasn't like a big part of my personal life whatsoever. And then, you know, Todd, you and I didn't know each other at this time, but like towards my late twenties, I wasn't going out. You know, I had gotten to, I was just like so defeated in life that I was the king of isolating and pretending everything was fine on social media, of course. But, you know, for the most part, just like the king of isolating. And I still wasn't drinking, but I was binge eating almost every night. Then I lost the weight and, you know, I had never been in a relationship. I had never gone on a date with somebody more than like once or twice, and all of a sudden, I go out and 
I started to get attention for the first time in my life, just like where like people were coming up to me and hitting on me, which you, was kind of a dream come true. But I was meeting it with like a resentment. You know, I was like, oh, fuck you. Like you wanted nothing to do with me a year ago. And now look at you coming for me now. It's really like completely innocent people who did not know me a year ago. <laughs> and like, you know, they're like, I'm sorry. They're like, they're like, what is this? Like, what is this about? And I was like, you wouldn't know because you weren't there. But if you were, you would have been a dick. <laughs> and, and so I, I know it's a true story. It was really going on in my head. And I honestly, I also have a lot of, I know this is a surprise to most people. I have a lot of social anxiety. Like I'm good in a small crew when it's just like one or two people. But if I go out and there's tons of people, even now today, I'm not the kind of guy who can just talk to a bunch of strangers in a room. It's just not. So interesting. I always think of you as an extrovert, like a a true extrovert. That's uh, Yeah. And I do think the one-on-one experience with me, like if the three of us were out for drinks right now, I am extroverted in that situation. But like going to a gay bar and, you know, and like all of a sudden, (laughs) oh yeah. And like at a drag show, like I was like, please don't talk to me. Like, please uh, thinking about the drag queen, like where most people want to interact with the drag queen. I was like, I'm just here for the performance. (laughs) (laughs) So do you feel like the biggest, like, what is the kind of... Because I always have a hard time with this because I have anxiety and I have generalized anxiety, but I do not have mm-hmm. social anxiety at all. I mean, if anything, like put me into a giant room full of strangers and it's like my favorite thing to do. So what is like your biggest fear of those strangers? Like that just that you won't say the right thing or they'll like, I guess I'm just curious how that feels. I, you know, so there's this like need like I'm like I want people to love me. I want people to think that I'm awesome. And so like I come out guns a-blazing, you know, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna, I was like, I was like, they, and it's overkill, you know, it's like, it's off-putting. People are like, okay, okay, we get it. And I, I really struggle with living in the middle, like with just truly being myself is really hard for me. And I remember I was at one of my best friends, it was her 50th birthday party, it was last summer, and she doesn't remember this, and I think that's like a very key thing to know here. I got there and I knew like half the people at the party and then the other half were people I didn't know. And I got there and she, it's too long of a story to explain why. She wanted me to wear a certain shirt because she thought it would like kind of funny in a funny way, piss this other person off. And I came in not in that shirt and she was like, I, and it was her birthday. And so she was kind of in charge. And she's like, I thought you were going to wear the other shirt. And I can't remember what I said, but I clapped back because it was in front of everybody. And I clapped back with something that I thought was going to be hilarious. And you could tell she was like taken aback by it. And it was like crickets among the people who were there. And everybody just kind of like awkwardly got back to the party. And in my head, I was like, I should leave. I was like, this is like, you know, I was like, I shouldn't be here. Like, this is this... Anyway, so, and I did stay and I felt like we were covered. And the next morning I sent her a text and I was like, Hey, I was like, I owe you an apology. I was like, you know, I get social anxiety and I made that joke and it wasn't funny. And she called me right away and she was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. (laughs) And I was like, Oh, that moment that was like, because it's a big deal to me, but like nobody else gives a shit, right? Yeah. Like nobody but gives a shit. at the same time, that's a big ask of somebody who does have social anxiety, like to wear a shirt to make a point. 
when you're already like freaking out about a party. <laughs> like, so maybe it would have been helpful to tell her that beforehand. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't think hey, she look, knew. I'm not comfortable with that. Well, in her defense, it was originally my idea. Oh, I was like, oh, should okay. I wear it? I was like, <laughs> well, then there's no, yeah. It's your own fault. It's your own fault. I was like, should I wear this shirt to piss off so-and-so? <laughs> Won't that be hilarious? And she's like, oh, please do. Yeah, that's then, fantastic. Yeah, she thought it was a great idea. But the moment you decided, the moment right. you decided. Yeah, let's <laughs> get back to <laughs> The moment you decided alcohol wasn't going to be a point in your life. Because you said earlier in this interview, you were like, it just one day, it just it just clicked. So my life coach, this was probably, I quit drinking April 15th of 2020. I didn't get fully sober until November 20th of 2020. So during, this the, pandemic. during the pandemic, wow. I know. I always joke that they had to shut the bars down. <laughs> <laughs> Take away access. I know. I was like, they had to close the world down to get me to stop. So it must have been like 2017. I was on a phone call with my life coach and I always like told her stories of like things that were happening. And she said, hey, can I bring your awareness to something? And I said, sure. And she was like, almost all of your stories revolve around going out and drinking too much. And she was like, and maybe it's not a situation, but just something I think maybe you should have some awareness of. And I remember I was like almost taken aback because it hadn't even crossed my mind at that point that I was drinking too much because at that point, alcohol was like my superhero cape. I could go out and drink. Social anxiety was gone. Uh, All yeah. of a sudden, I was the life of the party. Oh, so you were, I, you were high, high, super functioning. Like you could work. Oh, and super do high functioning. Yeah. But also and, you were fixing a problem in a way in your head of like, mm -hmm. well, this makes this tolerable. Yeah. And I was like, and... Because I was like the fun drunk, it also felt like everybody loved me. Like the bars where I was a regular, like when I walked in, it was a moment. People were like, the party's about to start, you know? And I loved we, that. We did. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> it was. When Tyler would show up, it was like, okay, shots, let's go. <laughs> it was you a fun time. It. it was. And so I remember she asked me if I knew how much I drank. And I said, no. And she's like, okay, she's like, your homework for the week is let's just develop an awareness here, see if it's something we need to talk about. She was like, count how many, uh, and wine was my drink of choice at the time. She's like, count how many glasses of wine you're having a day. And so I did the homework. At the end of the week, it was like 12 to 15 glasses of wine on average. And it was like spaced out throughout the day. I'd have like two or three at lunch with clients. And then I'd go back to the office. And then I'd go to like a broker happy hour. And then I'd meet friends or clients for dinner. And then I'd go out after. And so it was just like. How were you here. not sloppy at all? That's a lot of alcohol. Especially with I your know, stomach just, being tiny. I'm like, Jesus. I don't know. I just like, I wasn't. <laughs> it's a gift. I, I know. And like a lot of people knew I was drinking. They're like, oh, he's fun. It's fine. Like it wasn't, I don't know. But I remember in my head, I was like 12 to 15. She's going to think that's a lot. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, and it's probably a lot for most people, but I can handle it. And so I decided to lie to my life coach and tell her that I was drinking like six glasses of wine a day. And when I told her I was drinking six glasses of wine a day, she nearly fell off her chair. And she was like, are you kidding? She was like, Tyler, she was like six glasses of wine a day. And I remember I had, I was like, too much. I know, you know, and she was like, Tyler, let me just reverse it. She was like, if you found out that I drank six glasses of wine a day, every day, she's like, it's one thing to like go out one night and have like a big night out. She was like, but six glasses of wine every single day. She's like, 
would it change your opinion of me? She's like, would you be concerned about me? And all of a sudden I was like, oh yeah. I was like, as a matter of fact, it'd be hard for me to like take your advice as a life coach. And, you know, it'd be hard for me to be serious about this relationship that we have. And in my head, I was like, and for me, it's, you know, it's more than double that. You know, it's, I was like, I'm not even telling you the truth. And I kept that to myself. And I was like, okay, I'm going to cut back. I'm only going to drink on weekends. And that was when I realized that I had a big problem because by 11 a.m. every day, when I tell you it felt like there was a Vulcan death grip on my shoulders being like, you need a drink. And it was like such like a, I didn't realize how much of a chemical addiction I is that had. From, is that from like anxiety? Like No, I think it was at social- that point, chemical dependence at that point. Yeah. Yeah. I really had like, I had like a true alcohol dependence that I had formed. And so I started like sneaking away from the office to go like slip in drinks. I was like getting to the point where I was like sneaking away from showings. I would even like cancel pretty big appointments. So it was affecting your business. Oh yeah. Yeah. And I don't know how I got away with it for so long. And I guess it's just, you know, some grace that I did. And every single time I tried to moderate, every single time I tried to cut back, it was like the addiction got 10 times stronger, you know, and they say that in sobriety, while you're trying to quit drinking, your disease is in the parking lot doing pushups. And, you know, and that was my exact experience. Oh, yeah, no, it was my exact experience. It was like, every time I tried to quit drinking and failed, it was as if my disease came back. And it was like, I'm stronger than ever. and, And you're a bigger piece of shit than ever. You know, and I really started to spiral. And that was definitely the darkest period of my life. I felt like, you know, I'd survived obesity. And then all of a sudden, this alcohol addiction had completely taken over my life. And that felt like my dirty, dirty secret. Because at this point, my career is exploding. I'm on TV, lots of amazing things happening for me. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to lose this all over alcohol, over wine. And I didn't want anybody to know. And we were shut down, obviously, for the pandemic. And I was quarantining in East Hampton with my best friend, Austin. And he is somebody who goes like in and out of not drinking, you know, and he's like, for him, it seems to be pretty easy to start and stop. (laughs) And so I had told him, I was like, hey, I was like, I would like to try to not drink while we get out there. And he said, okay, let's not drink then. And I didn't want him to know that I wasn't committed (laughs) And so I would like leave to go on like joy drives every day and I would go drink and then come back and try to pretend that I was like totally sober. And he had no idea. He had no idea, but I was lying to him and sneaking out and drinking. And April 14th of 2020, there was one restaurant during the pandemic where you could like drive to their parking lot and they would sell you wine. And I went into the parking lot and they had this Sauvignon Blanc, which is always my go-to. That was, it's an expensive restaurant. And so it was like 50 bucks a bottle, but it was like the cheapest wine they had. Yeah. <laughs> and you still had to pay the restaurant markups. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh God, this is so desperate, but I'll do it. And she came out and she's like, we're actually, she's like, we're sold out of that one. And of course I was you like, are. <laughs> I know. And I was like, okay. I was like, this is, I was like, this is something coming through telling me not to drink right now. Telling me. And so I pulled out. And then I pulled back in and I was like, what else do you have? And it was literally like went as far as to leave and then turn around and went back. And she was like, for Sauvignon Blanc, she's like, I only have this one. And it was a very expensive bottle. It was like 150 bucks a bottle. And I just got like washed over with so much shame. And I bought two of those bottles and 
like drove back to my house, sat in the garage for a second, thinking about just drinking these privately, knowing my friend was inside who thought that I hadn't been drinking. And I walked inside and he was sitting in the living room and I just had the two bottles in my hand and I just started sobbing. And I was like, I've been drinking this whole time. And I was like, and I have a really bad problem. And I was like, I've never told anybody, but I was like, I don't know. I was like, something's wrong with me. And drank those two bottles of wine with him that night, just sobbing in front of the fireplace. And that was the last sip of alcohol I'd ever had. And looking back on it, you know, I think that was really the first time I ever had a, you know, I went on to actually do the steps, but it was like, I feel like that was my first step one of finally like saying to somebody, I was like, I have a big fucking problem. And I've been trying to pretend, oh God, it gets me every time, you know, but I was like, I have to do something about this. And he, he was he was the best friend. I mean, like just, and he's still my best friend. Nothing yeah. happened to him. He's fine. He's alive. He's still, here. He's still with us. But, yeah. Oh yeah. And so we did quarantine together. I was still smoking a lot of weed and mushrooms were always my drug of choice. And so oh, I would wow. just like get high, eat mushrooms can, and go on like long beach walks. You can like I handle a lot it. of things that I just feel like, you know, this is a, like, <laughs> the, a, a gift, a bittersweet gift. I know. And then I remember November 19th, I was not doing well. I was just in kind of like a funk. And somebody was like, oh, maybe you should try the program. And I was like, that means I would have to quit everything. And they're like, just try it. And so I tried it and haven't looked back. That was you know two and a half years ago. Well, that's absolutely incredible. I mean, I think too, I'm sure that helps you a little bit in your weight loss, you know, just keeping up with things as well, because you know, that can also add, even though you're used to liquid diet, it's, you know, a lot of calories. It's, you know, in general, but also you've talked about that you don't call the photos of you from, you know, like before and after photos that you prefer to say past and present photos. Why is that? Mm -hmm. And do you think that this story we kind of tell ourselves has a direct impact on our success in life? Oh, for sure. You know, when you say like you're, this is my after shot, it's like, is that the end? Like, you know, my after shot will be what's on display at my funeral. That's the only, <laughs> a, that's the only after shot I will ever take. But for me, the after shot basically symbolizes that the work is done. And, you know, the biggest lesson I've learned through every single thing in my life, the good, the bad, the ugly, personal business, all of it is that it's never done. You know what I mean? At the gym that I go to in the city, they're saying is the mountain has no peak because you've got to keep climbing or the rent is due every day is another good one. But, you know, when I'm taking a picture from, you know, I always say prior and present just because I like alliteration. um, (laughs) And, you know, anything from my prior and then where I am today. But from today, there is a good chance that that at some point in my life, I'm going to put on 20 pounds that I need to take off because I'm a human and I go through cycles and sometimes I'm really fucking disciplined and sometimes I'm not. And instead of like looking back at any of like my transformation pictures with some shame, because I did start to do that. There was like this one picture that I posted for like my first before and after, which is what I called it at the time. And I remember I was so shredded in that after picture and probably to date, it's still the most like shredded I've ever been. And then I did not do the work to maintain that. 
both consciously and subconsciously because I was just like, okay, I was like, the lifestyle I have to live to look that shredded is not a lifestyle that brings me joy. You know, it's like not, I still want to be able to like enjoy my life and go out and indulge every now and then. And I don't want to work out two hours a day every fucking day. I was like, it's just like, that is not how I want to spend my time on this planet. And for me, it was like finding that thing in the middle of like, where can I balance in some indulgences? I love working out, totally love working out. It's a big part of my life, but like, I'm like, I'm not going to live at the gym so that I can look like this picture that I once took. So instead of looking back at that after picture with shame as if something that I need to live up to, that's where I was when I took that picture. And whatever picture, I take pictures in the mirror all the time. It's pretty gross. And like, because that's where I am today. You know what I mean? Like, and it takes the shame out of wherever you were in that moment. Maybe you're in a better spot. Maybe you're in a worse spot. But that was the present then. This is the present now. This is where you are. And you can show up for it however you need to show up for it. Yeah, I like to think as somebody, you know, I have also kind of, I wouldn't, I've not yo-yoed to the extent, but of going on kind of fad diets or whatever. And it's like, you reach a point of, okay, this is just not manageable. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, I can't, I'm becoming obsessive. I'm, you know, not enjoying the moment. I'm like scared of other people's food. Like, just like, there's a lot that you live in that whole thing. I can definitely relate, but I like to think sometimes like now that I'm kind of in a better place with that and like, I accept, you know, as long as I'm not obese, I'm at least, or extremely overweight, I'm, I can say, okay, well that picture is like a little bit of a trophy Mm -hmm. of something I accomplished at that time. And, but I realized that that was something I did at that time. Like when I was running half marathons, you know, I was teeny tiny and, you know, I think of that as that, that was marathon Laura and that's (laughs) awesome, but I don't want to be marathon Laura now. Like I don't want to kill my knees and run miles and miles and and feel like I want to pass out every night. So yeah, I think it's all about balance, honestly. And it seems like you finally found that. I want to ask you something, Tyler. You know, you have said this question. This gets me really pissed off. You said that when you were heavy, that a lot of the criticism, this breaks my heart, a lot of the criticism and judgment predominantly came from other gay men in New York and wreaked havoc on your confidence with dating and meeting, uh, like meeting your clients. And can you just describe this? Because that's... You know, you don't, you might not know this, but I was very heavy as a child and a teenager. And then when you do change, I can relate a lot to you when people start treating you differently, especially in the business. So I would like to hear specifically how you dealt with that. Okay. It's funny that you asked that because looking back on it, I have to take some responsibility because some of it was like projected shame and fear of being treated a certain way that I was just kind of, I had decided somebody didn't like me before they ever got a chance to tell me what their opinion was of me. When I first moved to New York and I was younger, you know, I was like 19, 20, 21 in that kind of age range, you know, I had worked it out pretty well where on my dating profiles, it was neck up and I've never really carried a ton of weight in my face. And I always love it now when people are like, Rob, I look, you know, usually I could look at somebody and tell when they were overweight. I can't tell with you. And I was like, honestly, my face has looked like this at every single number that the scale has shown up. 
And um, I just don't know why it was, I, I guess it also looked kind of weird when I was obese because okay, it was yeah, like, you know, it, it looked, it looked like a pimple on the top of a mountain. Oh my but, goodness. Um, it was just the peak. Totally. <laughs> and anyway, and so, you know, I was just always strategic with like my dating profiles. It was like, so it wasn't like it was not a real picture of me. But I think I would go on dates with people and I could just, there were so many times when people would feel cheated, you know, when they would feel like they had almost, I guess, what we would call today catfish. That wasn't really a buzzword back then. But I'm sure they felt catfished. And it was kind of like this awkward thing because they were like, it's obviously you. They're like, but we didn't, we didn't know about this whole other thing. Yeah. And I just had like a few, the one that always sticks out was (laughs) this guy this was probably like six months after I moved to New York. He, we met up, we had met on a dating app of some sort. And as soon as we met up, it was very clear that he was uncomfortable with what he saw and didn't know how to communicate it. He was around my age. So he was probably 20, 21. And, you know, and was just like, the energy was, how do I get out of this? You know, and we had made plans to go to Yum Yum Bangkok (laughs) in Hell's Kitchen. And so we went there And honestly, the conversation, I felt his uncomfortable energy, but the conversation actually felt great. You know, it felt like we were vibing and like getting along. And and we sat down at the restaurant and ordered our food and his phone started ringing and he was like, oh, he's like, I need to answer this real quick. It's my friend. And so he went outside and I never saw him again. Stop. Oh my gosh. Do you know that... Young, innocent Tyler, it never even crossed my mind that he was about to dash. And so I waited and I was just sitting there and like our food came out and like 15 minutes had gone by. And it was actually the waitress who came over and said, do you want to go check on your friend? Make sure he's still there. I think she had put together what had happened. And it was just kind of like, oh, this poor kid has no idea that he's just been ditched. And that was kind of like my first like shame pain memory, you know, because I remember just like coming back. I couldn't afford his food. I got lucky because I started like texting a bunch of friends and and a friend happened to be nearby and he's like, I'll eat his dinner (laughs) and came over like sat with me and ate it. It was a good friend. But ah, I mean, that was like there's a lot of stories like that. But that was that first one that I was like, oh, I'm afraid of you people. I'm afraid of the gays. And that story, honestly, that story is still alive and well in me. Like, I am very awkward on first dates to this day. I also never know when I'm on a date or if we're just hanging out because I'm like... Wait, are you single right now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, And I've been... I thought you were... There was a gentleman I saw you on a, like, I think it was like a red carpet. And then there was another time that you were... So you're thinking stomatas. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah, I so, feel like you were in the Hamptons or something. I don't know. Yeah, we were together for like a year, and Stamatis is still a really good friend of mine. Thankfully, you know, I've only had his like, name is Stamatis. Mm-hmm. Oh wow, Stamatis is. I think Stamatis is single, and just so y'all know, he's a total catch. You should go get him, <laughs> and he's and he won't ditch you on a date. He won't. He's actually one of the nicest, sweetest people I've ever met in my life. You know, my life is. I'm still. I've been actually doing a lot of reflecting on like where I am in terms of wanting a relationship because I am good on my own. You know what I mean? Like I love my life. I have all the things I need. I've got great friendships. 
I don't want kids. I guess I shouldn't say I don't want kids. I love kids. And if I fell madly in love with somebody and they wanted kids, I'd be a very easy yes. But like, do I have like this deep desire every day when I wake up that I need to like create a family? No. And so for me, it's like hard for me to think of like making these big life adjustments or changes for somebody unless I'm just like absolutely crazy about them. And Stamatis was the closest I've ever been to just being like, oh, whatever we need to do for this to work, I'm going to do. And then for better or worse, I just kind of had like this moment in our relationship where I was like, like, this isn't, you know, and, and I was like, and it's definitely not you. I was like, because you're 10 out of 10, like, you know, like you're just such like an amazing guy. And, you know, and so I've been single ever since, been having a lot of fun, you know, but there's been several times now that like, I'll go on a date with somebody and feel like I like really hit it off with them. But then there's, I don't know, A, I'm like, are we just hanging out as friends right now? I also just think now this is ego talking. I always have to make the first move. I think like I'm always the person who has to do the thing first. And I think it's because like it takes like a special kind of person to be like, I'm going after him. The guy who's like, you know, at least I think. And I don't like being the guy to make the first move. You know what I mean? Like I would really love for somebody to like step up to the plate and just be like, I want this. I want you. And like, let's go for it. But this doesn't happen that often. But, you know, I, I think it's awesome that you're taking some time just to kind of to be who you want to be and, and explore that. I mean, it's, you know, it hasn't been that long since you got sober. And that's a big part of, you know, I think keeping maintaining all of this stuff and the fact that you did the work alongside it, the mental work. And I think you're really kind of on this, you know, shooting star right now. I mean, you've got, let's talk a little bit for a second about your podcast that you also have called Glitter and Gay. Ah, and it's my fave. That, yeah. And you and your co-host Glenda Baker cover like everything from real estate to sobriety and everything in between. Not to mention you're both hilarious and from the South. So I, I enjoy that as well, being from the South. But what inspired you guys to do a podcast? And we want to send some listeners over that way. So what can they expect from it? So Glenda and I have known each other since like 2015, 2016. And we've always had like a special chemistry. And she lives in Atlanta. I live in New York. But we always find each other at like these real estate conventions that we always go to. And we have the same sense of humor. And I think we identify with each other because I think whenever you're like playing the funny card all the time, people underestimate how much of a business person you are. And Glinda is one of the most inspiring business people I've ever met in my life. I mean, that woman runs an insane business. You know, and so I would get so inspired by her because I was like, okay, I was like, so I can do both. I can be myself, go for the laugh, be funny, be this character, and also be very serious about my business, which I am. And like, and I was having a hard time kind of like melting those two together. And so she and I would always get together and talk about it and we would laugh our asses off. And, you know, and then I think in like 20, I had just gotten cast a million dollar listing and I was doing kind of like these like Facebook live videos every now and then. And she and I were in San Diego and I was like, girl, I was like, come do this Facebook live with me in my hotel room. And so she came up and she did it. And it was the funniest video to date that I've ever made. It went very viral on Facebook. It was my first thing to ever go viral. And it was just literally the two of us. I'm like holding my phone and us just like talking. 
And nobody knew Glenda at that. So Glenda is now a huge TikTok celebrity. I would say she's the most influential real estate agent on the internet. But at that time, nobody knew who she was. And Glenda is not playing a character in her TikTok. Y'all, that is Glenda through and through. That's why she's so special. She doesn't have to do anything except for talk. You know, like she, it's just that is naturally what comes out. And so I remember after that moment, I was like, she and I have a gift. I was like, we just have like something... And that was before her TikTok exploded and then her TikTok exploded and she and I had always been talking about it. So finally, at the end of last year, we made the commitment. We were like, let's do this. And we made our first 12 episodes. And I think it was like episode three or four, we had like this kind of like mini viral moment and got a huge, because whenever it first opened, we had a, you know, a nice audience, but nothing big, you know, we don't have like a podcast deal or like, you know, any advertisers or anything like that. And so we were all just kind of putting out content to see what happened. And our viewership exploded for that episode. And then all the viewers stayed and like the count never really went down after that. And when I tell you, it's like the most satisfying very funny it's very very (laughs) funny thank you y'all are hilarious (laughs) it's just so satisfying you know what i mean it's cathartic for me we cry we tell real stories we did a few homemade episodes to hold us over because i'm going up to atlanta next week to film the next season but we did a few homemade episodes to hold us over and i just got the edited ones back and i just hit play on this random one and you know, I've been in that this spot lately where I've been thinking a lot about like, what do I want to do? What's next? And we recorded this like a month ago and being able to like listen to yourself back and be like, wow, my mindset was so strong in that moment and being able to tap back into it and be like, that's not somebody else. That was just me like spitballing. But even for me, I'm just like, oh, right. Like I have some power in me, even though I'm feeling like a little bit weak at this moment. Like it's nice to be reminded like that was authentic. That was genuine. And I was able to tap right back into that. I was like, that's the strong side of me. That's how I like to show up and exist in the world. And for me, it's therapy, you know, but I love it. I love it. So how long have you guys been doing this podcast? We just did. This is our second season. So we did. Yeah, but what, 20, we're coming up episodes. on we haven't even done a year. We're coming up on a year. So yeah. we've had we had wow. some breaks and stuff in between there just because our lives are crazy. But it's yeah, we had it's, some great people on, too. It's been a, such a great cathartic. Like you said, it's cathartic. Yeah, it feels like therapy kind of for us, too. Yeah. I mean, that's like part of actually the past couple of months. We could we took a little bit of a break because. We've both been pretty overwhelmed with life stuff. Mm -hmm. And I remember Todd basically at one point just FaceTiming me and being like, I miss it. Like I miss seeing you every time we get on here. I miss just talking and, you know, that it's, it almost is more for us than it is for anybody else. And I hope that comes across, but you can definitely tell that listening to y'all's podcast that it's, it's a friendship. We do have a sort of what we call a palate cleanser after talking about so much heavy stuff. Oh. And so this Enjoy is it's it. sort of a tradition and it's called the question of the day. And the question of the day today is what villain in a Disney film do you secretly cheer for? Ursula. Oh, really? Yeah. 
Just not even, not even have to I, think about wow, it. I'm no. amazed you came up with that so fast. So I yes, love her. Do tell. Yeah. What What is your favorite <laughs> characteristic? I'm just well. Firstly, uh, poor unfortunate <laughs> souls is one of my favorite songs ever, and so she was somebody that I used to like dance around in my living room pretending to be. She made voluptuous beautiful. She was like the first like va va boom is like the body language exactly (laughs) you know what so regardless of what her intentions were in the little mermaid you were like get it girl she gave my inner soul a voice she was my personal hero that I wonder what like, Ursula's trauma was I know you know that's what I was say is this like a thing where you're like she's just misunderstood or is it like no she's she just like be. queen you are killing it yes <laughs> or, she's like I want to sing it's my turn. <laughs> I'm tired of this little girl that keeps singing. In front of my yeah. Get <laughs> you chicken. Let me show you how it's done. Give me your voice. Yeah. <laughs> Give it to me. Literally. I just love that you didn't even have to think. Yeah. It was just like. <laughs> immediate. Well, you know, was, she was the she was the first like villain that came to mind. And I was like, oh, I love her. And so I just said yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> so really all of them could be possibly your favorite. Thing I know. And now, now that I have like a little more time, I'm like, are there any, literally nothing else is even coming to mind. So clearly I made the right choice. Clearly that was you the right definitely choice. Definitely yes, made the right sure. choice. Absolutely. <laughs> well, we can't thank you enough and you know, we'll hope to see you again. Yeah. We I will such a hope blast. the same. I did have a blast. All right. Bye. All right. Later. Have a good day. So, what'd you think? It was so great to see him. I can't believe the man he's become and continuing to become. He's just such a... It's like he is truly living the best, his best life right now. And it's inspiring. It's overwhelming kind of seeing because the Tyler I knew... Yeah, when you knew him, did, hmm? what, had he already had surgery? No, no. I knew him oh, okay. when he was large, but he... I don't know why he thinks he was always handsome. Yeah. You know, he, it's not like he was grotesque or anything. What I took from this interview is that the way he was talking to himself, you know, the stories he was telling himself, he was so mean to himself. And it's like, I'm just so thankful that he has sort of come out of all of that time in his life. And he's just, he's thriving. I mean, it's, it's really remarkable. I do think it was definitely a testament kind of to how self-criticism can sabotage, you know, anything you're trying to accomplish. Like there's a healthy level of like, okay, well, I need to maybe tighten this up and do that differently. But that, you know, ultimately, if you're just punishing yourself constantly in your own head, it's going to come out sideways in in one form or another. Mm -hmm. And it isn't always positive to be like, I'm the worst at this. I'm you know, I, I got to get my shit in gear. I loved that he, when he was talking about that, there was a time that he was super shredded and, you know, he doesn't like to think of that like, oh, well, that's what I need to be all the time. Like, it, I think it is great to work towards something and actually accomplish that. But, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. you get to a level it's not healthy anymore or it's overkill. And so, you know, I think you've heard me say this a lot lately, but I'm really embracing this whole grace idea. And I think it's, you know, he has a healthy balance of, 
working on himself, finding the root of what was causing those things, not just being like, I'm fat, right. I need to lose weight. It was like, what's happening here? And I think everybody, I was surprised to learn not too long ago that people that get those surgeries, like they get, whether it's the sleeve or lap band or whatever, that they aren't required to have therapy. Because I would think as an insurance company paying for your surgery, I would want to make sure that, that person, you know, keeps up. Like, Yeah, but that would mean that, you know, mental health would have to be a lot more, they would have to take it a lot more seriously than they do. You know, I think well, that you're absolutely right. Because so sad. <laughs> no, you know, what really got me was when he was talking about when he decided to no longer take a drink and that trip with his friend Austin. And when he got emotional, it was clearly a turning point in his life. And I think he, you know, him saying it was so difficult to just say it out loud. But once he said it out loud, it's like, that's the moment that changed everything. So it's so important for people to talk to, you know, they say acknowledging you have a problem is like the first step in eradicating it from your life. And I think that that more than ever now can be applied to everything in your life. Like it doesn't have to just be alcohol or eating. It can be anything like the amount of people that are workaholics or that, you know, just are avoiding issues. I mean, I think that there's a certain point where you have to say, I have a problem and it doesn't need to be like this, like, oh, I need to go to AA kind of problem. Just talking about it, giving it like some acknowledgement in a way and knowing that there are people that care about you enough to help you with that problem. I think that that it was exactly. a very good example of, of surrounding yourself with good people because, you know, if it had been somebody else, it may have been a different experience, but he certainly felt comfortable enough talking to him. And, and I think that is a testament to talking in general. So, you know, well, this podcast is clearly a good idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, get people talking. Yeah. It was just so cool to see his, I don't know. You were super evolution. pumped when he came on. When yeah, even before we were on air, and you saw him, you were just like, "Oh my god!" And well, he made a we joke. Have, we, yeah, he did make a joke that we we used to date and I ghosted I him. And, apparently, yeah, like multiple yeah. things are going on there. <laughs> oh my god! It was but, all, we were children, but yeah, no. I'm just, I'm super, super grateful that he came on and gave his time. He's so busy. So it's just, it was so kind of him to come on the next page. By the way, Laura, question of the day for you. What villain in a Disney film do you secretly cheer for? So this was really hard for me. I can't believe that he was like on it so much because I was looking through the list and I was like, hate them, hate them, hate them. I literally had to look it up because I was like, I don't think I can find one. And then, you know, I think ultimately... It was Hook a little bit, Captain Hook. Oh, wow. And that's because I never really was a huge Peter Pan fan. I don't really like this idea of that we never grow up and that we just like, and now that it's overtaken the thought process of many men and people in Charleston, I'm just like, (laughs) you know, like let's have some responsibilities. Like he, I think Captain Hook was just trying to like make him stop being a menace to the whole system. And, you know, he's missing a hand. I mean, he's like got a lot of things. You can tell something happened to him when he was younger. Like he's just, I feel in general. Oh God, like, the trauma of Captain Hook. Yeah, oh my you can God. only imagine, can imagine how he, you know, obviously. Losing your hand. Took the I hand, mean. but I mean, before that, 
what brought you to the point where you're hanging out with the crocodile? Anyways, there's just a lot of questions I have. So I feel in general, like, you know, he, he may be a little bit misunderstood and I will reiterate that I do not think Peter Pan is the best, is the best message <laughs> out there for everybody. So just take another look at it. If you ever <laughs> like want to think about I it, will. but I you know, will. I, the, the easy answer would have been Maleficent, but you know, that's who I'm going to say. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Just kidding. Maleficent. <laughs> no, it's fine. I think Maleficent is so fierce. Have She's you seen such... the movies? The, the... Yes. Yeah. Yes. And you got to know a little bit of her trauma and her backstory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I think Maleficent is, is the beat. I think yeah. she's great. She is. And I always thought she was the most elegant of all the villains. Although there a was swagger. a regal. She does. I never liked, well, you know, the the woman who did the voice, and her name is escaping right now, but the woman who did the voice of Maleficent is also the voice of the evil stepmother in Cinderella. It's the same I person. I see that, that yeah. The I that they do. There's some things like that whole overlap of like Snow White, Cinderella, Sleeping yeah. Beauty. I think there was a lot of using the same for sure. people for and sure. whatnot. For sure. And ideas. Yeah, it was, I love Disney back then, although it really probably fucked us all up. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if, uh, yeah, the, the happily, whole princess. We live happily ever after. Yeah. I mean, I mean I oh did, God. I mean, going back to what Tyler said, I love the past and present as opposed to before and after because. Oh, the, the prior and present. He said, yeah, I yeah. love that he went, no, let's do oh, the prior and oh, present. The prior. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that every, it's a, not a great lesson to be like, and then everything was perfect because right. as we know from doing this long enough that we're all works in progress. So 100%. Yeah, Disney maybe get, they're getting way more woke though. You know, I hundred percent. Yeah. hundred percent. Luca. I'm really into that movie if you haven't seen it. So go check it out. Oh, I've never seen it. Never seen oh, it. Oh yeah. It's all about this like merman who ends up, it's kind of like a reverse <laughs> little mermaid. Little mermaid. But, <laughs> yeah. Little, little merman, but it's really little good. Mermaid. So they're figuring it out, but it was a good question. And I'm glad that he got to get his thoughts out about Ursula and his love for her. Because <laughs> clearly yes, been we thank you so that. much to Tyler Kane Whitman for coming on the program today. And yes. Laura, it's always great to see you. Yes. Always great to see you. We're back, baby. Yep. And see you soon. All right, sounds good.